Hi, I'm David Freudberg, and I'm on a mission. Since I was a high school intern in public radio back in NPR's first year on the air, I've devoted my working life to seeking out and disseminating knowledge that I hope will be enlightening and will benefit the lives of our listeners. But the grants we get, the generous support provided from foundations and some others, simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep this going. Please visit humanmedia.org, and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a grant from the Lintelac Foundation. The thing about nuclear power is they're wonderful when they're working the way they're supposed to work. As soon as they stop working that way, uh, it can be quite catastrophic. The high-stakes idea of expanding nuclear power to counteract climate change. You're listening to Radioactive, a special documentary from Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Ernie Gunderson, an engineer in Burlington, Vermont, has had a front-row seat in the long debate over nuclear energy. Should it be viewed as a vital source of electricity to power our homes, workplaces, and mobile devices, or a dangerous, accident-prone technology that produces radioactive waste? And the question has been revived by some climate scientists who maintain that nuclear reactors a source of low-carbon energy needed to mitigate global warming. At his office in Burlington, Arnie holds a Geiger counter, which detects radiation. Every time a, a, a particle from uh, cosmic rays, or we call them a gamma ray, um, crashes into the detector, it makes a spark. And so what it does is it measures those sparks inside the detector. So every time you hear a click, that's one atom being ionized, being uh, turned into an electronic charge. Gunderson has worked as an executive on nuclear power projects spanning 70 plants. He points out that heavy exposure to radiation is extremely hazardous. It can cause cancer, radiation sickness, and death of the kind that afflicted victims of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But much low-level radiation is natural. It can be detected in common elements like uranium found in soil and rock. Radiation also descends routinely to the Earth's atmosphere. Today I'm in a brick building, so the brick from the rock and the radiation coming down from the sky um, will normally trigger the Geiger counter, and that's called normal background radiation. On top of that, I have my grandfather's old radium dial watch. And uh, back in the 1920s, they painted watch dials with radium so they would glow in the dark. And the women who did the painting all died. It was the first case of um, really occupational exposure. Um, these women were young. They were in their 20s, mainly in St. Louis. By the time they got 30, they started to uh, come down with cancers. And most of them were dead by the time they were 40. 
I'll move the watch in front of the detector and it will give you an idea of how callous we used to be toward radiation exposure. So this is normal background. And now I'm looking at the gauge and the gauge says that the number of clicks that you're hearing is somewhere around 1,000 clicks per minute. That's normal background radiation. Next, I'll put my grandfather's wristwatch next to the detector. And that pinned the needle. It's 20,000 disintegrations per minute are coming off of my grandfather's watch. The radiation exposures at Fukushima were uh, uh, several thousand times background. And here we're talking 20 times background. So the uh, post-accident, the exposures from Chernobyl and from Fukushima were thousands of times background. The meltdowns at Fukushima, Japan in 2011 and at Chernobyl in Ukraine in 1986 are regarded as the worst ever nuclear power accidents. Total health effects from the radioactivity there have not yet fully played out, but estimates of cancer deaths attributable to the Chernobyl meltdown range from 4 to 25,000. It shows the high-risk gamble in setting off an atomic chain reaction to generate electricity. What happens when you split the atoms of uh, the uranium-235, it also releases energy and heat. And it also creates these radioactive isotopes that heretofore did not exist. In Washington, Professor Robert Alvarez specializes in nuclear policy at Johns Hopkins University and the Institute for Policy Studies. So if you're standing in close proximity to a spent fuel assembly that's been pulled out of a reactor, uh, the level of radiation would create a prompt lethal exposure. It would destroy basically enough to destroy your organs. And that would be how rapidly? Well, uh, you know, this is we're, we're, we're talking in a hypothetical here because these things just don't happen that way. But if you are, are, are to come within a foot of an assembly that's exposed to the open air, uh, you'll receive a lethal dose in a matter of uh, seconds. So you're saying these things don't happen that way. Is this all theoretical, or is, this inf- or is there, in fact, a danger to humans? The danger has been greatly mitigated by the engineering of the reactor. Uh, they, these, are, these, these machines are, are very complicated uh, facilities that are based on a lot of engineered barriers that make sure that humans are not going to be exposed to these very large lethal doses. So should people take comfort that this is totally safe? What happens, uh, not because of the radioactivity that's generated itself, it has to do with the, the, the machine, the reactor, and what might happen during the course of an accident. Apprehension over the safety risks of nuclear power has recently intersected with deep concern about another peril, the daunting challenge of global warming, with its threat of heat waves, drought, rising seas, and turbulent storms. For the sake of our family's health and for our kids' future, we have a moral obligation to act on climate. The science is clear. 
The risks are clear, and the high costs of climate inaction keep piling up. Gina McCarthy, administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, June 2014, announcing new policies to curb pollution from coal-fired electricity plants that release heat-trapping gases into the atmosphere. There's always the opportunity to shift to no-carbon sources, like nuclear, like wind, and like solar. McCarthy joined several prominent climate scientists in including nuclear power on the list of alternatives to high-carbon fuels, such as coal, oil, and natural gas. But embracing nuclear has provoked a loud rebuttal by other environmentalists, who advocate safer renewable energy sources like wind and solar. The views of nuclear engineer Arnie Gunderson have evolved. From 1990 until 2010, I was telling people that um, we should have renewables and we shouldn't have coal or oil, but the bridge technology should be nuclear. If there was not enough renewable energy, we could bridge that gap with nuclear power. And then the accident happened in 2011. An unprecedented nuclear disaster looming in Japan. An explosion at a nuclear power plant just over 200 kilometers north of Tokyo and its 14 million residents. This a day after it had been damaged in a massive earthquake and resulting tsunami. Is this a nightmare scenario of nuclear meltdown becoming real? And what can be done to contain the nuclear threat while at the same time dealing with... Over the last several days, the American people have been both heartbroken and deeply concerned about the developments in Japan. President Barack Obama at the White House, March 2011. Even as Japanese responders continue to do heroic work, we know that the damage to the nuclear reactors in Fukushima Daiichi poses a substantial risk to people who are nearby. That is why yesterday we called for an evacuation of American citizens who are within 50 miles of the plant. The partial meltdown of three reactors there caused fire, explosions, and radioactive emissions, prompting immediate evacuation of nearly 160,000 people. An area almost the size of Connecticut recorded radiation levels that exceeded the allowable exposure rate in Japan. Engineer Arnie Gunderson watched with alarm. And that's really what what, uh, finally pushed me over to the fact that this is not... Uh, a technology that can never be safe. The 23 plants in the United States that are ex- identical to Fukushima Daiichi. Is it the Mark One? Yes, the Mark One reactor should be shut down uh, permanently because there's just too many risks. It was too small. There was too much power in too small a volume. And um, if any containment was going to burst, it was going to be a Mark One. And it burst three times in three days. And so is it your current position that nuclear power just needs to be done away with, that we need to close down the entire fleet of nuclear power plants? I said we should shut down the 23 that are identical to Fukushima immediately. That's what the Germans did. They they had five reactors that were identical, and they shut them down immediately. Uh, But the other roughly 80, their, their lives should be ended when their licenses end. So we should wean ourselves off of nuclear power. Just over 100 nuclear plants now operate in the United States. The total fleet is decreasing due to economic pressures. Nuclear currently provides a little under a fifth of total U.S. electricity. Coal and gas-fired facilities comprise about two-thirds. The sectors growing fastest are natural gas, a fossil fuel, and climate-friendlier renewable sources. 
In Colchester, Vermont, Mary Powell is president of Green Mountain Power, the state's largest electricity provider. Back in 2008, um, we launched very publicly a very aggressive strategy around ramping down our dependence on nuclear energy and ramping up our dependence on renewable energy. We didn't, though, say we didn't want any nuclear energy because, um, you know, as you know, there's great discussion about the low carbon attributes of nuclear energy. So uh, the energy vision that uh, I launched on behalf of the team was one that was focused on low carbon low-cost, incredibly reliable power, but using nuclear strategically in the portfolio to help us keep it low-carbon. And there appears to be general agreement that nuclear power plants have a substantially lower carbon footprint than fossil fuels. Well, in operation, it's very low because uh, there's no combustion and there are no global warming gases released to the atmosphere. William Muma, environmental policy professor at Tufts University, was a lead author of the UN's landmark 2011 report on renewable energy. So they don't produce much in the way of global warming in the operation. But if you look at the whole fuel cycle, you can't just take uranium out of the ground and put it in a reactor. Uh, fuel needs to be enriched. In the United States, most of that is done in a region of the country that relies heavily on coal. So the it's a heavily it's a electricity intensive process. Uh, so there's a there's a carbon footprint there. There's a carbon footprint in the mining of uranium because that's all done with uh, fossil fuel, you know, diesel engine machinery. Um, the transportation of the fuel, all of that is done with trucks and so forth. If you add all that in, it's a, it adds the carbon footprint. And there are considerable long-term emissions from the massive concrete structures where reactors are housed and from maintenance of spent fuel, which can last centuries. But beyond environmental concerns, there's a serious question about the feasibility of expanding nuclear power. The industry is financially troubled, and no new American plant has been completed in decades. Of the recent new reactors planned, nearly half were canceled. A typical nuclear plant is immense, costs billions, and takes more than a decade to build. Designs for smaller models have been proposed but remain untested. We cannot ramp up from the 100 plants we have to the two or 300 that we would need to make a big dent in greenhouse gas emissions in anything less at this point than 15 or 20 years. Peter Bradford served on the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission and chaired the New York State and Maine Utility Commissions. He now teaches at Vermont Law School. Back in 2001, the Bush administration first announced what was then called the Nuclear Power 2010 program because it was supposed to produce new reactors by 2010. In fact, we still don't have any new reactors. So new nuclear power plants have not saved one molecule of carbon in the U.S. Um, during that time, energy efficiency, renewables, coal-to-gas conversions, improved automobile mileage, uh, changes in home heating, agricultural practices, have saved a lot of carbon. So. Where has all this money we've been spending on nuclear already got us? Nowhere. You're listening to Radioactive, a Humankind Special. I'm David Freudberg. To obtain an audio copy of this documentary and to learn more about nuclear power, 
please visit humanmedia.org. The development of nuclear power began with military research to invent the atomic bomb. We have spent more than $2 billion on the greatest scientific gamble in history, and we have won. President Harry Truman, August 6, 1945, hours after the U.S. atomic bombing of Japan. The top-secret Manhattan Project had brought together talented physicists with a focused goal, developing a bomb that would end the nightmare of World War II, which it accomplished within weeks. It also announced the nuclear age with a bang, killing nearly 200,000 civilians at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The U.S. military later conducted over a thousand nuclear bomb tests. safe distance, this explosion is one of the most beautiful sights ever seen by man. This Army training film from 1955 shows the brilliant light and terrifying mushroom cloud of an atomic detonation at Frenchman's Flat, Nevada. You're probably saying, so it's beautiful. What makes it so dangerous? Basically, there are only three things to think about. Blast, heat, and radiation. Radiation. This is the one new effect obtained by the use of an atomic weapon. Truthfully, it's the least important of the three effects, as far as the soldier on the ground is concerned. After the United States upped the military ante, the Soviet Union began atomic bomb testing in 1949. It marked the start of the high-risk American-Russian Cold War, and it fed into popular imagery of U.S. military involvement against North Korea's communist government in the early 50s. There will soon be an end to this cold and wicked war When those hard-headed communists get what they're looking for Only one thing that will stop them and their atrocious fun If General MacArthur drops an atomic bomb They'll be fired just in the middle Flying all around And the radioactivity will turn them to the ground If there's any commies left They'll be all on the run If General MacArthur drops an atomic bomb the Cold War cost the United States trillions of dollars, but the spooky specter of nuclear war also took its toll on the nation's psyche, as depicted in the gripping 1964 drama Failsafe about an unintended nuclear mission to bomb Moscow. Henry Fonda as the U.S. president during a very tense phone call with his Cold War counterpart, the Soviet chairman. We're to blame both of us. We let our machines get out of hand. Two great cities may be destroyed. Millions of innocent people killed. What do we say to them, Mr. Chairman? Accidents will happen. I won't accept that. What do we do, Mr. Chairman? What do we say to the dead? We got into this process uh, 
with the best of intentions to defend ourselves. Nuclear engineer Arnie Gunderson. Then we had this technology, and a lot of scientists, I think because of guilt that we blew two cities to smithereens, decided that we needed to turn it around and use it for uh, uh, commercial uses and, and show the world we had atoms for peace and not atoms for war. The Manhattan Project ushered in more than weapons of apocalyptic destruction. It also yielded significant advances in computer science, and early reactors constructed during the war to produce plutonium used in making the atom bomb paved the way for civilian nuclear power. President Dwight Eisenhower addressing the United Nations, December 1953. The United States pledges before you, and therefore before the world, its determination to help solve the fearful atomic dilemma to devote its entire heart and mind to find the way by which the miraculous inventiveness of man shall not be dedicated to his death, but consecrated to his life. Use of the atomic bomb in 1945 had released a genie, which the post-war world has struggled ever since to restrain. But the peaceful deployment of nuclear energy has also proved precarious. But no one stopped to think about the babies or how they would survive. And we've almost lost Detroit this time. How would we ever get over? Gil Scott Heron, the late soul jazz poet lamenting the near catastrophe in 1966 when the Enrico Fermi nuclear generating station located 36 miles south of Detroit experienced a partial fuel meltdown. Then in 1979, another partial meltdown occurred outside Harrisburg, Pennsylvania at Unit 2 of the Three Mile Island nuclear plant. Could I hear attention, please? Well, the accident began on a Wednesday morning. Peter Bradford was then a nuclear regulatory commissioner. On the following Friday morning, we were told that there had been a measurement by a helicopter over the plant of a greater amount of radiation than normal. Um, in a place where there just shouldn't have been such a measurement. At that point, we realized that not only did we have issues in terms of public exposure to radiation, but that obviously there was, there was a lot more wrong at the plant. I am advising pregnant women and preschool-aged children to leave the area within a five-mile radius of the Three Mile Island facility until further notice. Pennsylvania Governor Richard Thornburg, following his announcement, 140,000 residents evacuated the area. About half the fuel was destroyed, essentially. The fuel rods melted, uh, the zirconium cladding split open, and it wound up in the bottom of the reactor vessel. So. It was just a much more serious event than was known. 
at the time or even in the months afterwards. Why was it not fully known even months later? Because of the radiation levels. There was just no way to see it until eventually robotics reached a point at which a robot with a photographic capability could be sent in. Um, And the nuclear industry and the NRC were all astonished by the results. During the accident, some radioactive gases did escape to the atmosphere, but health effects are considered limited. Unfortunately, the consequences were far more dire at a crisis in April 1986. The Soviet government reports an accident at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Ukraine resulting in damage to one of the plant's nuclear reactors. An explosion had blown the roof off of Reactor Unit 4, igniting a fire that burned for 10 days. It spewed out virtually all of its radioactive contents into the environment. About 350,000 people were relocated. Clouds of radiation spread across western Soviet Union and parts of Europe. Sheep as far away as Scotland were contaminated. Filmmaker Marianne DeLeo received an Academy Award for her documentary, Chernobyl Heart. I was quite shocked when I saw so many adolescents with what they call in Belarus the Belarusian necklace. They have a scar across their neck, and they're all rather blasé about the whole thing, that they've all gotten thyroid cancer. When you ask them if they have friends who've gotten thyroid cancer, there's so many that they don't even find it unusual anymore. At Chernobyl, uh, about 1,000 square kilometers, slightly more than that was contaminated by the Fukushima reactors, is still uninhabitable. Nuclear policy expert Robert Alvarez. And we've exploded H-bombs in the Marshall Islands uh, where there were large deposits of cesium-137 Uh, in 1954, where there are still islands uh, among the atolls of the Marshall Islands that that are uh, essentially forbidden territories. Why exactly are they uninhabitable? What would would happen? What happens is that the cesium-137, when it uh, deposits in the environment or, or deposits on the ground, it starts to concentrate as it goes into the food chain, as it is taken up by by plants and, and uh, wildlife and, uh, and food. So uh, the concern is that it, it also gives off a form of external penetrating radiation as it decays. So it, it both can lodge inside your body, and if you're in an area where you're being chronically exposed over a period of many years. Because it hasn't gone away. It hasn't gone away, and you might be consuming Uh, food that's grown nearby or just being, just living nearby. So you're saying people in those regions could actually be eating food that's radioactive? At Fukushima, the uh, food that was grown in that 20-mile radius is essentially banned. And in addition to food that's grown on land, the seafood and aquatic life that is essentially harvested uh, in the vicinity of the Fukushima reactors are now banned and prohibited, and uh, this this is an indefinite uh, problem. Proponents of nuclear power argue that while accidents do happen, the technology is generally safe and necessary in an energy-hungry world. 
Critics respond that we should focus on conservation and that much less risky energy alternatives are available and on the rise. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg, studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose, associate producer Mark Kilstein. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham, webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Taylor Dobbs, Lisa Mullins, PRI's The World, and Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, Radioactive, Part 1, is Humankind Program number 211. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.